0: Hello, you delightful maniacs. I'm so glad you came back to hear another episode of Printing Idiot, the podcast. This is your idiot, Jay Floyd, guiding you through another series of seemingly random thoughts that I promise you don't stay that way. <laughs> We're in the thick of the holidays. Holidays. I don't care what your religious beliefs are. Um, uh, you're having holidays right now. You're in the middle of them. Those of us who are American just got through Thanksgiving. I think we're probably still all on our trip to fan highs, or at least coming down from them. And uh, we have the more religious holidays ahead of us. And uh, it's, it's interesting. You know, I, when I moved away from North Carolina, where I grew up, and uh, was you know, in a situation to create my own holidays, um, I didn't do much I think it was because my mother uh, put on such a show for Christmas. That's what we celebrated. Um, She put on such a show that nothing I could do would be anything but a pale comparison. uh, A a pale imitation, not comparison. pale imitation of what she did. And I couldn't touch it, so I just sort of didn't do it most years. Um, My mother would, like, blow a flippin' fuse. She... Um, I think just because of some strife in our family or something, she, she made the holidays bigger and bigger and bigger, sort of as an apology for the year, maybe. <laughs> um, it got to the point where we had to annex another tree for all the gifts. Um, which was delightful. I mean, seriously, it was like heroin to me. I was—I, It was the most exciting time of the year. She, The woman put on a holiday show, let me tell you. Um, and I'm not slagging it. It was beautiful. It really was. And even if it did have a tinge of, um, here are some presents to ignore all the things we aren't talking about. Um, even if it did have that tinge, it was still fun. I got to tell you, um, not everything has to be healthy to be fun. This is sort of, maybe that would be my... Uh, If I had to name my life story, Not Healthy But Fun might be the title. Um, uh, So I came out here to Los Angeles, and I I never really built a holiday tradition other than spending time with friends, which is good. I mean, I'm very fond of spending time with friends. It's uh, probably my most favorite thing to do around the holidays. Um, one year I was dating somebody and, uh, he might be listening to this podcast. See if you can figure out which person I'm talking about. I was dating someone and I turned into Ruth Floyd. I turned into my mother and I just overshopped and overspent and it was beautiful. It looked beautiful. Everything about Christmas night, Christmas morning looked right. I didn't feel a damn thing. You know, it's not a religious holiday for me. I'm not um, uh, by the book Christian. I believe in a lot of Christian beliefs, uh, a lot of Christian teachings, but I'm not really a Christian. Um, I don't buy virgin birth. Um, not that anyone's selling it, but I don't. Those sorts of things don't resonate with me. Uh, the whole idea of it being Jesus's birthday—I mean, you know, it really never was that in our house. We we gave a lot of nods to it. There was the manger. Um, but it was about the stuff let 's face it, it was about the stuff in my household and um, so i didn 't really have a huge christian tradition um, and that morning that I had tried to make it look right, I got up and and we we exchanged gifts and and uh, it was exciting to give i really I really enjoy giving more than receiving. Um, that's a whole other podcast. I, I, don't let me go there, Jay. Do not make this sexual. Anyway, um, I enjoy giving <laughs> more <laughs> than receiving, and um, and that was fun, but it didn't. It didn't, ultimately wasn't very fulfilling, and I don't think I tried again ever. Also, that guy that I was dating, who's a lovely person, um, was really artistically gifted, and he made our tree so beautiful. It's like I didn't want to get near it. It was so beautiful. Um, and I could, I tried, I think I did try one year after that to do it. And I was like, oh, I need a gay. I mean, I'm, I'm gay in all sorts of ways, but I'm not Christmas tree gay. I, I wish I was. Um, but uh, uh, if, if said gentleman is listening and now has identified himself, um, will you come over and do my tree this year? Um, there, I asked. So the holidays are here, guys. Uh, we're having them. And they're a meaningful time. That was my dog shaking his ears out. Could you hear it? Um, it's a meaningful time uh, in that we get to take time off from work. We get to unplug from our routine. And we're sort of confronted with introspection, aren't we, in some ways? Um, how are we feeling? How are we doing? Uh, those of us who don't have to put on a big show are, are given some time with ourselves, uh, that's what happens when structure goes away in my life as I end up having time to really look at my life. And honestly, sometimes that has made me the more anxious than anything else in my life. Um, being able to have the time for introspection, uh, sometimes it's like the Haunted Mansion. It's like you, you don't know what's going to pop out of the next box. You know, if it, Do you really want to look over there? Because there could be a fuzzy bunny, but there could be a gremlin. You, you're not sure. Um, time spent with yourself can be a little anxiety-producing. Um, So can the holidays. You know, all the agendas and and things to do and people to try to make happy, Um, you know, all the the things we task ourselves with during the holidays can make us really anxious. And um, I have dealt with anxiety disorder and panic disorder in my life. It turns out my mother had it, her father had it, and my father's mother had it. I didn't stand a chance as far as uh, not having it myself. It, that, I came by it, honestly. It's been here for a while. I see tendrils of it reaching all the way back into my childhood. But um, if you, by the way, if you were ever with me at NYU and, uh, and I just started sweating so profusely that I looked like I was under a shower, guess what? That was anxiety anxiety disorder and I didn't know it at the time. Um, but it wasn't stopping me from having a life until a couple of years ago. Well, there's somebody I want you guys to meet. Along the way, I met this guy who started this group. His name is Drew Linsalata. He lives in Long Island. He's um, not a medical professional and he's not a therapist, but he is a person who went through and conquered anxiety disorder um, and panic disorder as well and some agoraphobia. And uh, he did it while raising kids. He did it while running a business and his journey was a long one, but what it ended up doing was sort of transforming his every day, uh, because now he leads a group of people. He created a, group, a a place for a group of people to get together and help each other heal. This wasn't something he planned on doing, which is why I really wanted you guys to meet him and to hear his story, because our difficulties and our pain, they are never, ever wasted. Um, a couple of quotes I ran across. Um, Anxiety is the handmaiden of creativity, said T.S. Eliot. Anxiety is the handmaiden of creativity? So anxiety is subservient to the act of creativity. So when we are in anxiety and when it becomes intense, we are also actively creative. We could use it to create something. I'd argue that that's what Drew did with his group. There's another interesting sort of, uh, less romantic uh, quote I found by Sigmund Freud, he said, the act of birth is the first experience of anxiety and thus the source and prototype of the affect of anxiety. Think about it. Think about a birth. That is the, f- the first experience of anxiety and all anxiety that follows is in some way modeled by that. That really makes sense to anyone who has been through an intense period of anxiety in their adult lives. And those of us who do get through it, which everyone can, we can attest to the fact that it does have qualities of rebirth to it. Now, about the conversation you're about to hear, it is the first one I've done via Skype and using a recording device to, to you know, capture it. I'm not real thrilled with the way this recording device attenuates, and it's a little choppy and a little under my own standards, but the conversation itself was so good, there's no way that I'm going to be able to recreate it, uh, nor would I ask Drew to go through it again. Um, But know that we're going to be working on that, and that in the future, if I am doing a remote conversation with someone, it should be a little better than what you're about to hear, but the content is still primo. So without further ado, here's Drew. Hello, and Salada. Hello, Jay. What's
1: going on?
0: <laughs> so many things. I'm a grinning idiot. How are you?
1: Oh, uh, you're not a grinning idiot. But that is a good name. That's a solid name.
0: You know, here's the thing. It it uh, it actually means several things to me. First of all, my license plate is Big Idiot. Um, it's a compliment in my world um, because I uh, like if I see a dog that is really insanely cute, or if it does something very doggish, The first word out of my mouth is "idiot." It's a huge compliment. It means positive things, Um, but in the context of moving to Hollywood and trying to be successful as a screenwriter and director, uh, it just the answer to what do you have to be in order to pursue those things is clearly a grinning idiot, and that's where that came from, and that's why I named my production company that. But that's where that came from. That's Uh, good. I like it. It's a compliment from me. From other people, maybe not so much. Um you are a New Yorker. You grew up in Long Island? I am a New
1: Yorker. I was born in Brooklyn and I grew up on Long Island and I've been here most of my life. Um 4 years in Buffalo when I went to school, but came oh back God. here afterwards and here I am.
0: Is Buffalo the coldest place in the world? Does Superman live there?
1: Here's the deal about Buffalo. Like I'll give you the, the 30 second version. It's not the coldest place in the world, but it's close. It's not the snowiest <laughs> place in the world, but it's close. Um yeah, it, it was a real eye opener. I thought I came from like a cold northeastern place and then I went to Buffalo and I was like, Oh yeah, no, I, I, I come from the tropics pretty much. I, so. uh, I
0: know I know people who've followed a similar geographical trajectory and when they talk about Buffalo, they always say, And by the way, you don't know cold until you live in Buffalo.
1: And and vertical and horizontal precipitation and no sun. <laughs> I, anybody who lives there in a the long term, it just toughens you up for sure.
0: Okay, Here's the, this has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but I'm sharing it anyway because it was beautiful. You said horizontal precipitation. When I was uh, going to NYU, I had an acting class at the top of a building at 721 Broadway, which is where NYU's Tisch School of the Arts is. And we were having sev- a severe snowstorm. But of course in New York, you know, New Yorkers don't stop for anything. And so I'm in class. There are these giant windows all around the space. It was like a big warehouse space at the top of a building. And the wind was blowing so hard and it was snowing so hard that outside it was snowing upward. Oh, all yeah. Oh, was going up.
1: Yes. <laughs> I, ha- I have seen that in the city. I've seen that high up. Like I used to work between like the – we had the 38th to 42nd floor at 783rd Avenue. And in the winter, it would snow up. Up there just because of the currents around the building. It was the best thing ever.
0: Of course, as a southerner, I was like, they can't do anything right.
1: <laughs>
0: these Yankees. Do it
1: our um, way, right? Pal, that's fine.
0: So and you know what? <laughs> it's something we have to respect about New Yorker culture. Um, um, no, oh god, I miss I'm so, I'm just sorry. Now I'm missing winter, but let's get over that. I'm in Los Angeles and you're back east. Um yeah. I wanted to talk to you because the way we met, um I met you because you started a podcast um, helping people to deal with their anxiety disorder uh, and panic disorder. Um, And in getting involved with that and then getting involved with a group that you started on Facebook um, called, well, it used to be called that anxiety guy. So you'll still find some stuff about that out there. It's now called the anxious truth, both places for anybody who's interested in that, um, getting to know you a bit, um, this was, this is sort of uh, what brought you to this is a bit of a surprise before you knew that you were dealing with anxiety. Um, what, where was your life headed? What were your goals? Were you married yet? What was going on before you knew it was an issue?
1: Um, it actually was a major issue for me twice. The first time was when I was in Buffalo, actually my sophomore year oh. at UB, was the first time it ever happened to me. Um, then I started having panic attacks and didn't know what it was. And you were in school? You were in school? Yeah, it was spring break of my sophomore year. So I was about 19 years old. Uh-huh. And uh, that's when it, the first time in my life it ever popped up. And I did not know. I will never forget that first time I ever had a panic attack. It, it, that's what were you doing? I was actually home for spring break. I was laying in the bed that I basically grew up in, in the house I grew up in, listening to the radio, reading a book. And, like, suddenly everything went sideways. And I didn't, I didn't know what it was. And it freaked me the hell out. And... I mean, you understand the progression. It just, like, it scares me so much. I didn't know what it was that I started getting afraid of the next one and Mm. I should have a panic disorder quickly. And that was a really difficult six months. I finished that semester. I went back to school and I kind of, like, you know, white knuckled my way through the rest of the semester. Actually got a 4.0. I don't know how, but I did.
0: (laughs) uh, You might be a little bright, Drew.
1: I, I might. It's possible. But uh, so yeah, everything was going great. But anyway, that's the first time it ever popped up. I didn't know what it was. And then I, I kind of stumbled upon a psychologist over that summer between sophomore and junior year who handed me that Claire Weeks book that we both know and love. A, and a Hope
0: and Help for Your Nerves.
1: Correct. And, and everything was like hunky-dory within a very short time after that. So well, I, so- I kept- so yeah, before good. that
0: happened, though, before that happened, though, where yeah. were you aiming your life? Did, were you like, for me, I know there are a couple of different kinds of people. Some people have always known what they wanted to do, and some people just didn't. I always knew I wanted to be a filmmaker, and I started making movies around the age of 12. Yep. At that time in your life, which person were you? Were you aiming somewhere specific?
1: I was, uh, to be honest with you, I've never been the person that necessarily aimed far into the future. I, I tend to make it up as I go along, but at the time, I was, by my sophomore year, I had an interest in architecture, but when I went to school at first, I like, declared myself a computer science major. I don't know
0: mm. why. That turned uh, up people be I
1: yeah, amazing, right? So I hated it. I in halfway through the first semester I said I cannot write another program to add up the numbers from one to a hundred or tell you what day of the week, you know, <laughs> February eighth, twenty ninety two is gonna be. So I didn't really ever get past the learning phase. I got out, I said, yeah, architecture is it. So I was studying architecture, I was enjoying it and but I didn't, I, you know, I was not really that like, oh, okay, I have to finish this and get onto my next goal my next goal and then be married by the time I'm 30 and have two kids and make this one. I never was that guy.
0: So you weren't working on script?
1: No, I was definitely not working on a script. Like I, I make it up as I go and that's always been fine. Like I have a general direction and that's where I was going. So I can't say that I was the slave to the script of my life anything like that at that time.
0: Yeah. So then you when you finish college, um, the the one off panic attack, started to bubble a little bit. You started having a consciousness of there being something off there. But did it plague you at that time or did you just go out into the world and get your first job and do what young people do?
1: Yeah. So uh, so that was spring break of sophomore year. So I'm 19. It was a, a tough. Like I said, I finished the semester. I figured out what it was over the summer. I read the book, I did the work for a very short amount of time, I will freely admit it was quick for me, and I said, oh, okay, I know what this is, I'm good, I'm not scared, and it went away. Good. And I went out into the world, and I started doing my thing, got my first job, did all that stuff, and it came up again later, 96, so eight years later.
0: Graduated were you married yet? Or
1: you at the time, up? yes, I was. I was married at that point. And okay. And curiously, I had just gotten out of the design and construction business and into the internet business and everything was going great. Like I was one of those guys in the beginning of the first dot com boom. I was in that and uh, everything was going great. And then it wasn't. So it came back the second time for the life of me. I've made some crazy decisions in my life. One that I'm never going to understand is why I did not dig out that book again, because I still owned it and do the work again, I just didn't. And so I let it get away from me and, and that's when the wheels really fell off.
0: Well, tell me about the wheels falling off. So at, at that time, when I wanna know what that looked like or what it felt like, and, sure. and at that time, what life did you have in motion when this happened?
1: I had a, um, what was turning into a very successful internet-based business. We were an internet service provider. So and that, oh, those were the You were, were an
0: ISP, I've never met anyone who started an ISP.
1: I was an ISP in 1990. I mean, I'll give you the 30-second version. I actually started building an online service. This is how old I am. I would call it an online service. So I think you could be relate.
0: careful. We're the same age. Go on. Yeah.
1: So, uh, we, <laughs> we were, my partner and I, we were building an online service for architects and engineers and builders because that's the business I was in. And I said, "Oh, I kind of like technology. Let me apply it to that." And I started doing that. We spent a ton of money, and we were way ahead of the game because first we had to teach people what the internet was before we could sell it to them. So that sort of That's flamed like out because we were too early, and I was left yeah. with all this infrastructure. And we said, well, what can we do with this? And so we became an internet service provider. But the twist was those were in the days when Apple was out of cash, the John Scully years, Gil Emilio, mm-hmm. we had have no market share, running out of money, and on their deathbed. And we all used Macs. So we started a service that sold internet service only to people who use the Macintosh. Oh. It- it was a stroke of genius. We called it Matt Connect, and our tagline is "We don't, you, we don't do Windows." And it took off like. A house on fire. <laughs>
0: that makes me really happy. It took off like what?
1: It took off like a house on fire. It, it took off really. It was it was quite successful, right. and um, everything was going great. And suddenly, anxiety and panic began to bubble up again. And there you go. And I just I just let it get the best of me, and I didn't approach it in a good way. And what it, what basically happened was over the course of you know, a, a few months, probably five or six months, I, I, you know, I became kind of crippled with panic, full-blown mm. panic disorder, pretty much agoraphobic. I became clinically depressed the whole nine yards. It, were it all. Working, were you working out of the
0: home or was this, uh, or not?
1: No, no, I had, I, we were in Northport, New York, in this awesome office, and uh, copper upstairs is chiming in. I love animals. But, um, yeah, he's got to get it. He has to be heard, you know. But, okay. uh, no, we had this awesome office right on the water in Northport, on the north shore of Long Island. And I had a whole team of people
0: and employees and people helping to me to run it. And... You were the boss man. Oops, are you there, Drew? We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Um, we were talking about your uh, ISP business uh, really taking off, and then anxiety attacked you, and then our internet went out. <laughs> Just because life reflects art, art reflects life, and everything is reflected in a podcast.
1: I could not have scripted that any
0: better. (laughs) (laughs) Really happened. Really happened. (laughs) Because they are in the machine. Um, So when okay. When last we when last we were uh, joining you in your story, you were on the gr- on the ground twitching in a panic attack. Okay, not literally, um, but so your right. business was taking off, and and this little monster came back and started attacking you. Tell me what that was like.
1: Uh, well, you know, it just sort of cr- crawled back in. I started feeling you know more and more anxious, and that general background stuff, and that it led to a panic attack, and another one, and another one, and and for some reason that I'm never going to know, I, I did not go back to what I knew. And I uh. just let it let it get away from me. And, you know, that it, you know how that goes. It leads to full blown panic disorder where everything becomes a danger because you're worried about the next panic attack. And that mm. led to becoming pretty much agoraphobic. And then clinical depression set in and the wheels just oh, fell okay. off. And, and I basically had to withdraw from my own business.
0: OK, see, that's what I was wondering. Did you have a period of time where you thought, oh, no, this is going to destroy everything I've built?
1: Here's the strange thing. I've never thought that. I don't really? know why I didn't think that. Yeah. In retrospect, I probably know why I didn't think that. No, I never worried, never in any of my struggles throughout the years with anxiety have I ever worried this will never get better or, or this is going to ruin everything or, or I, I will fail at life because of that. I, I think I was so wrapped up in how I felt all the time. I just didn't have the presence of mind to think about that
0: to be honest were you, with you were you okay i know that you're a family man were you married did you have kids at the time
1: i was married at the time but no kids yet they hadn't come along yet so okay. yeah that wasn't a thing yet
0: uh, how and did so your partner that, at the time how did your partner at the time did were you open with her about it did she know what was happening
1: yeah, oh, yeah yeah absolutely yeah that's not something that i you know that I hid or anything like that. And it just basically, she watched me get worse and worse until um, the way it got dealt with then. And that was 96 or so. The way it got dealt with then was things just felt really apart. And the biggest issue was depression. I was, I was literally clinically depressed. I can't get out of bed, Mm -hmm. kind of depressed, like dangerous depressed. And so I I wound up going to my family doctor and it was addressed at that point with medication. And that's, that's
0: what got me out of it.
1: Yeah, so in 96, what got me out of it was I started taking medication.
0: Sure. And I have I recently that. come off myself. So.
1: Yes, you are. You, you are followed a similar path. And uh, it, it worked. It, it worked in terms of taking away the depression. I remember I, the first I'd say, day. So up.
0: I'd say it helped me with my anxiety as well. I'd say that it, yeah. it did oh, yeah, work. It, I didn't yeah. like how it worked, but it did work.
1: That was my, you know, I don't want to go too much into it, I guess, because that's a whole other topic. Yeah, no, that way, yeah. It, It did work. It took away the depression, and it would short circuit panic, so I didn't have anxiety anymore. But it came with a whole slew of issues that that makes me regret having ever gone down that path. But that's how it was dressed at that point.
0: Okay. At that point, Drew. At that point, would you characterize it as having changed your trajectory in life at all, or did your life keep going on the same track?
1: I be to be completely honest about it, and I mean, you know my bias here, and you've seen me talk about this sort of stuff. What changed my trajectory in life? And I guess it was the anxiety and depression problem. But what really changed the trajectory was the, how I dealt with it, the medication. Um, for me, my experience was that it pretty much put my entire everything on hold. Oh. I just somehow I, I, I started gaining weight. I was making horrific decisions. I became a completely different person. Were you I aware of what was happening? I wasn't for a while. For a couple of years, I think I wasn't aware of it. And then I remember starting to get glimpses of like, I know I'm not supposed to be doing this. Like I was making terrible business decisions, terrible financial decisions, terrible decisions in my relationship. Awful, just awful, awful things. No Mm. emotion, no bad judgment. Like I just, you know, that the best example I could give you is I know I'm not supposed to eat five slices of pizza, but I would do it anyway. Mm -hmm. So, and that's what changed the trajectory of my my life. I had a good eight year period or so where I was just disconnected from everything. And during that period, my, I lost my grandparents, my, my two daughters were born and I sort of like sleepwalk through all of those things.
0: So when you look back on those, I'm curious when you, I have a feeling a lot of, look, a lot of people that will listen to this, half the world is medicated. So a lot of people are going to relate to what you're talking about. It's probably more than half actually. (laughs) Um, uh, I know this this place that I hang out sometimes. I just recently asked. By the way, has anybody here had any experience with um with uh with antidepressants? And everyone in the group I was in it was like eight people. Everyone in the group was on them. Yes. Everyone. I had no idea. None. Um, but anyway, what I was going to say was when you look back at that that period of time uh, when you were feeling so numb. Um, or or disconnected. Mm-hmm. When did it start to dawn on you that something was out of place?
1: When things got really, really, really bad in, in every like? aspect, business-wise, Because my partnership oh, okay. business dissolved. You know, I took some of the business. He took another, and things just started falling apart.
0: That, the business, was or was that was that a, a, a decent breakup? For the business.
1: Uh, it was no, it wasn't. Um, you know, he was just kind of tired of going one direction and I was going another. But really and truly in retrospect, and I, and I had to have this talk with him many years later, like I just checked out. So, you know, it was an amicable way we split it. There was no bad blood or anything like that. There was a little bit on his side, I just didn't even know that. So
0: But so you knew your yeah. part. Yeah,
1: I do my part. Yeah, so we, you know, we we split the business, and I had my own thing, and I just kind of withdrew into the corner, and that business slowly degraded and degraded and got worse and worse and worse, and you know, financially everything was a disaster. Relationship-wise, things were a disaster. I was not a good dad. I was it was terrible. It was just terrible. I was absolutely living as a numb, isolated island
0: like and in, so what what do you think the uh, what was the inciting incident that caused you to say enough already i'm stop i'm changing i'm not going to stay right. on this, this medication um,
1: i could you exactly <laughs> what the incident was i knew that things were bad right things kept getting worse and worse and worse and i, and I kept saying this isn't right like how is why why am i letting this happen mm. but yet nothing really shook me out it was at the time my oldest daughter was about four years old and I'll tell you the story really briefly because it's tremendously impactful. This is a pivotal moment in my life now.
0: That's I why we're come, talking, man.
1: Yes. I come home from work one day and I was hiding in like the bedroom with my laptop as I was wont to do at 305 pounds or whatever it was. At the time. Yes. It, was it was very bad. And, uh, you know, I had my head buried in the laptop as I always did. And my two daughters came out of my daughter's bedroom. They were four and two at the time. And a mm-hmm. two year old kind of they were heading for wherever the living room the house. And She said, Daddy, come here. And she you know, the typical thing, a little kid, she wants to show you something. And I said, okay, pumpkin, you know, I'll be right there. And she stood there in the doorway. And then her older sister, the four, she was four at the time, came back and said, she said, no, no come on, just come. He's, he's not coming. He just says that. Oh, okay.
0: That'll <laughs> leave a mark. That'll like, leave a mark.
1: has <laughs> left a mark. It is never, ever, ever going to go away. My four year old
0: woke she- me up. Does she know? Yeah, she knows does she that. Know that. I have told her. That. She's, yeah. she's now
1: 19, and I have told her.
0: And, oh, wow. uh, you um completely helped me to dig myself out of the hole. Thank you very much.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's why I – just to give you the Reader's Digest version, yeah, yeah, like you don't even know what you made, but the, thank you. And as t- <laughs> over time, I will give her more and more of those details, but yeah, she does know. So that's what – Well, yeah, that was the light bulb. I remember slamming my laptop shut. And it was in the evening, so I could not reach my doctor, but the very next morning, I was on the phone immediately, said, I'm coming to see you right now, and I'm gonna, not, I'm gonna stop taking this medication. This is not okay. right.
0: So this you had not- an awakening, you 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 just totally woke up. And then, and and so I'm sure the process of, of changing the medication or getting rid of the medication was not pleasant. Horrific is the word hmm. I would use. Yep. Horrific? Yep. Okay. Horrific. But and you those- were still working and being a dad at the same time.
1: I was so I had to go through that, and so we're now we're in 2005, and it's really kind of the next two, three, four years that that made all the difference. That pivotal moment put me on a course that I'm on now, and all of the stuff that I had to go through—the withdrawal from the antidepressants, the you know the readaptation, whatever you want to call that phase—that mm. was a good year or so. Then the the trying to make it work without it and trying different things and. Uh, You know, it was better. And then it started getting worse again and and arguing with the doctor like, well, you need to go back on the medication. And I literally remember standing in his office saying, you can put me in a box before I go back on those effing pills.
0: I'll try to keep it family friendly. And he looked at me. This is not a family friendly show at all. Well, depending on your family, there are families (laughs) who wouldn't mind the things I'm going to talk about. But a lot of people don't want to hear about lube and have to tell their children what it is.
1: Uh, All right, well, I'll stay off the lube topic, because I have an ad there, but as far as, as far as, I think we pretty much perfected that technology. But as, far as, as far as that goes, I remember very clearly, I looked him right in the eye, and my doctor and I, to this day, are, are as much friends as we are doctor-patient because of that. And I, I literally stood up, and I said, you put me in a box before I put it, take any more of those fucking pills.
0: I have a curiosity there. Did, did he learn anything from that moment? Do you think that changed the way he dealt with, uh, with meds?
1: He did, because in the beginning, he would tell me again and again and again, like, you don't understand, he, he was still in that whole, like, hey, if you were diabetic, you would take insulin, right?
0: Oh, no, like, I've heard that a million times.
1: Yeah, I, I want you to go back on the meds. I want you to go back to it. Because I was, uh, Jay, I, was, I don't need to prolong it, because there are many places we could hear stories of antidepressant withdrawal and, and re but it was horrific. It was just a horrific experience, and he, many, many times, I, you should just go back on, you should go back on, and I was adamant that I would not do it. He stuck with me. At one point, he said, you may have to find a new doctor. I said, fine, I'll find a new doctor. And I remember him coming back in the room five minutes later and saying, all right, we'll do it your way, but you're gonna come and see me every other day. Every other day. He was so wow. worried Wow. Yes, and I did. And then I got to see him every third day. Then I got to see him twice a week. Then I got to see him once a week. Then every two you weeks.
0: Give me, and then, just because I wanna, I wanna make it a little, a, yeah. one step more real, when you say horrific, give me a couple of descriptions about what was horrific.
1: Horrific would be – and anybody who's listening who understands this, you know what panic feels like. You know what maybe depression feels like. Mm. When it comes at you in – in because because your brain chemistry is not right. Like, you know, the, I'm going to preach a little bit here. But, you know, drug companies are really happy to tell you that it's a, they can make positive changes in your brain chemistry yeah. without ever acknowledging that maybe those changes aren't always positive. So when you take away the medication, you are chemically scrambled eggs for we think – maybe 30 to 35% of the people who take this stuff. I was unfortunately one of them. And when you are chemically scrambled eggs, you have no control over any of it. So it comes at you in wave after wave after
0: wave. I'm, listen, Drew, I gotta be honest, I'm having a little bit of, I'm just over a month off of um, yeah. what, oh, which one? Fluoxetine, which is Prozac. I was only on it for a few months and my dose didn't get very high, but I'm having waves of, I talked to you the other day and I said, I'm having these waves of, and you said nihilism. And I was like, yep, that's exactly what it is. (laughs) Swinging
1: from like extreme panic terror to incredible waves of just abject nihilism where like, what's the point with that? How were you
0: working? How were you raising kids? How did you do that at the same time?
1: I would, well, one of the things, and this is where, how it ultimately leads to you and I meeting in the forum that we met in. Now the internet exists and is, is ubiquitous. It's everywhere, right? So I remember getting online and saying, okay, this somebody has to know something about this. This can't be a thing. And I stumbled upon a forum at the time, which was called Paxil Progress because Paxil was the medication I was taking. And it I'm was a aware. forum of thousands of people who were going through what I was going through
0: mm. and it
1: became my lifeline. And I just had to, fi- I'm telling you, Jay, I spent hours every day glued to paxil Progress, and i am forever indebted to a nurse in new jersey who i'm still friends with who i say saved me from that ordeal because she i know you
0: i know this stuff embarrasses you but i've done the same thing with your podcast btw
1: well, I understand it. I do. It, it always freaks me out to hear people say that a little bit. I'm I know you. Like, I know
0: you don't love it, but it's but just true. But you know what? When you when you really help a bunch of people, they're eventually going to say thank you, and you need to get used to that.
1: I, okay. <laughs> thank you, my friend. You are very nice. But. Um... Yes, I was glued to Paxil progress for hours and hours and hours a day. It was all I could do sometimes, which is be to sit at that screen and just read and read and just, okay, this happened to this person, it's, you know, and I suddenly the light bulb went on that said, this is really really bad, but I can either crawl up in a ball and die or go back on meds and or I could just trust that these people who came before me that did get better. Like I'm gonna get better too. I'm not now sure how I'm gonna get
0: can better. We, I'll put pause get... on your story right here. So yeah. so you're having a doctor tell you to go back on meds. You're 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 going against what would be considered medical advice at that Absolutely. point. Absolutely. Where did that fortitude come from? Where do you right. think that came from?
1: Dude, I wish I could tell you. I can go back very early in life and, and that's just always been me. It's, it's whatever. It's my personality type. It's whatever it is. It's always been there. Like if I say I'm going to do this thing, I'm going to do this thing. And that's it. And I will do it. and So I don't know. That served me well. And so I just, you listen you
0: know, to your gut.
1: I always listen to my gut. I'm, I'm internally guided on almost everything. I, I reach out to people smarter than me and learn and ask questions and get the information and to make the best choices I can. But I feel like in my life, always, I've always been internally guided. So I knew that this is the way this has to
0: be. Do you know that that's a huge gift, being able to do that? People, People work with spiritual practices for years and years and years or psychotherapy for years and years, hoping to be able to first hear their inner guidance and secondly, having the courage to listen to it. People work really hard to get there, and it seems to be something you learned very early. I think you might have had a good parent somewhere.
1: I, I, oh, we could address that for 30 seconds, I guess. I can remember very clearly being like four years old and insisting we were getting dressed to go to whatever family function we were getting. My mother wanted me to wear one thing, and I wanted to wear another. And I <laughs> took it. At four years old, I took it right to the nth degree in my head thinking, well, the ultimate thing is some physical intervention where you can overpower me and make me wear this thing. <laughs> so, so go ahead, do that. I dare you to do that because I'm not wearing what you want me to wear. I'm wearing this. And they didn't, of course. And <laughs> there you
0: go. Oh, my Lesson God. Learned. Yeah, exactly. Okay, that's Lesson really learned. cute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I can picture it. I could picture the whole oh, thing. Like,
1: you know, like the red shirt versus the black shirt. Who the hell even knows at four years old? Oh, yeah. you know? But anyway, yeah, so that's been a thing all my life. I just, I yeah, know this is the way I'm going to do it. So like, all right, I'll get another doctor or I'll have no doctor, whatever. Like, that's fine.
0: So how long into this process did it strike you that maybe you should do a podcast about anxiety?
1: Oh, geez, that did not start. So 2005 to 2006, about a year of getting through, I don't know, 80% of the antidepressant withdrawal stuff and then starting to just find ways to work on the anxiety issues because they're still there. The uh, Paxil didn't cure anything. It just masked it for mm. 10 years. So, you know, now I got to find my way. And a few years into that and like kind of getting close to developing panic disorder came back, agoraphobia started developing again, but I, but I knew better and I, you know, I, 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 I approached the right way this time. And it took me some time to get through it. But I think it was the podcast is officially f- like five years old. Okay. But, but the time that I had spent on this forum, on Patsel Progress, even after I had gone through that, I stayed to help. There was something that I was just—I just felt indebted. Like I, I, this is the right thing to do—is to pay this forward, right?
0: Because so, you had you had received help from people that genuinely absolutely. helped you, and they weren't necessarily medical professionals. They were people with experiential wisdom. Yeah.
1: Just human beings, just other human beings. And I felt so strongly like I took from you. Now I have to give to the people who are coming behind me. And so I stayed around and I found that I actually enjoyed helping people. Mm. And then when it got beyond, I became an admin on that board and and the whole nine yards. And and I made lifelong friends that I still have today. (laughs) When that part was over and now I started working directly with the anxiety issues, the panic, the agoraphobia, that sort of stuff. And doing that work, I made more friends online first by finding people on YouTube who were making anxiety videos and then buddying up with them, some of which you've seen my videos with Billy in the UK. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I, that's how I met Billy. Um, and, you know, becoming friends with them and now all like get, circling the wagons and, and building little groups. We used a product called Ning, which was like make your own social network. and you know, We had a thing called Panic Station in 2009 that had about 100 or so people that, that looked very much like the thing that you see today. Mm-hmm. And it was just, I just... Got in my blood to help people. So while the podcast didn't start until 2014, like I spent all those years between 2006, you know, eight years or so in and out of like, well, just interacting with other people who have this problem, helping each other, supporting each other, encouraging each other. And that's that was the
0: seed of it. Let me ask you this. Um, Looking back before, because you got to full blown agoraphobia for a period, right? I did. Did, yeah. yeah, where like the the next challenge was getting out the front door. You've been there,
1: correct? Unmedicated, like okay, now I got to deal with this. The way. right,
0: and really? now you have a completely full and normal life. Um, the yeah. so when you when you look back before you went through this dark tunnel, um, did you have any? Um, Experience with uh, helping people in groups, or really philanthropy in any way, or was it mainly a workaday life raising kids? This is what defines me, and the blinders were on to other people's needs, or or this type of group environment.
1: Well, I had none. So that experience of starting to learn how to help people was was a real it added a dimension that I did not mm-hmm. have
0: up until mm-hmm. that time in my. Life. I mean, you learned it by receiving it. You learned about it by receiving it.
1: I was taught to do that by the people who came before me and reached out to me when I needed help. So they taught me how to do that.
0: Yeah, no, I'm having I'm going to relate to you there because I um, I didn't have uh, experience other than one on one therapy until I got sober 23 years ago. And, you know, in 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 12 step programs, you sponsor people and the people ahead of you are always helping you. And now I look back at that experience. And when I'm like working with someone on your forum on Facebook, um, that is exactly the experience that taught me how to help people who are going through what I went through that it's like, I didn't have that skill before something really painful happened in my life.
1: Uh, yes, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And learning that, and plus, you and I have talked about this. The act of helping, in and of itself, can be therapeutic. So initially, absolutely, being, being a helper while I was still in the midst of it, but learning enough, and you know, like you, you've been there, where like, okay, I'm far enough behind now. I'm far enough down the road where now there mm-hmm. are people in my rearview mirror. I can turn to help them. Just that experience becomes therapeutic in and of itself
0: and, and it, i think it makes it makes more three-dimensional um, the fact that we have recovered well to me to a degree to you yeah. i'd say almost completely um, yep. but it makes that fact more and more solid
1: uh yes it does that's true it, it's uh, to me i think that was unintended but that was one of it's the not things it's all unintended
0: I... that's 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 one of the reasons i thought to do this podcast is because so many things happen in our lives that we never would have guessed were coming they may yep. be horribly painful but they have this uncanny tendency to make us more useful people in the world when we're willing to drop some ego and say, okay, I had a problem.
1: Yes, that's true. And I think for me, I would say the lessons that I learned between, say, 2005 and 2010, 2012, like that, the, I would do all that again. If I had to go through <laughs> the experience of Paxil so literal, I would do, yeah. I'm not kidding you, I would do that again to wind up here. Like oh, those, I yes. say the
0: same thing about getting sober. I was locked in my apartment yeah. on meth for four years in my twenties, yeah. and I'm like, no, nah, I would, I, I would go through that again. There was, there were big pieces of my ego that were so fragile and damaged and out of whack. They really needed to be shattered so that we could build on that something new on that spot. You know, <laughs> we had to tear down the building that was there in order yeah. to build a new one. And I never would have known that in advance. But looking back, I'm like, no, nah, I don't know much else that would have done that for me.
1: No, we never do. I mean, even while it's happening, you don't really recognize it until you're down the roadways, you know, like. But I mean, you hear me say that all the time, like there's gold being forged in those fires. And one of the most rewarding things to see somebody who not only gets past their anxiety issues, but then comes back and says, oh, and now I know this. And now it's added this to my life. And so there are so many lessons that I learned in that ordeal that. So, yes, I've always had my own inner compass, and I follow it, but it has gotten even stronger, and it, there's a compassionate part of it now that didn't exist mm-hmm. many years ago, and there's just so much going on there. We, I, I was talking with a friend the other day about threat assessment, like just what I learned about threat assessment, which sounds crazy, but ev- all the things that we walk around daily that think are, we think are threats, having our feelings hurt, what we think, emotions – Hey, you know what? When you go through the stuff that I went through that you're going through now,
0: those aren't mm-hmm. threats. Those no, no, no. Comments. That's um, wh- one, of the, uh, one of my therapists started talking to me about distress tolerance. And mm-hmm. it, it, it actually has a lot to do with what you're talking about right now, which is um, I perceive things to be enormously um, dangerous that aren't yep. a lot. Yeah. But that's not just external. That is internal. Like I can have a mood and think, oh, no, here I go. I'm in trouble. Yep. Yep. It's a frickin' mood.
1: But you're not, and in that particular, you're learning to say like, "Oh, wait a minute, that's a catastrophic thought. I'm I'm not in trouble. I have tools. I can deal with this."
0: I'm still learning, and I'm still learning how to use it. But I have the language through Claire Weeks, through your blog, through the the lovely. You have some of the admins that you have on in your group on Facebook. um, On. Uh, the anxious truth on Facebook. Some of your admins are the most patient people I have ever seen in my life, and I'm just—I'm convinced that they're in a monastery somewhere.
1: <laughs> it's possible. I haven't been to Norway yet, so I don't know. She might
0: have- <laughs> <laughs> No, Ingvi. She—I I, I have said to her privately, I seriously don't know how you do it, because I'll be pulling my hair out over something, and she very patiently can repeat the basics over and over in the most yep. loving way. You know. It's true. It's true. Um. We're going to find out later that she's like, you know, some chain she's running, smoking.
1: That's exactly right. She's running <laughs> through the streets of the with a chainsaw right there. Like, going,
0: you know, I'm fine as long as I'm in front of a microphone, but otherwise I kill people.
1: <laughs> but so many lessons. that We I would love like you, Inkville. Goes again to learn these lessons. Yeah. yeah. Um,
0: so, so, Drew, to wrap it up, um, you've. You have built something, and at this point it's completely philanthropic, you have built something that is helping an enormous number of people, and you have you make a lot of time in your week for this every week. Um, this was not on your agenda at all. Are you no. how how conscious are you of how unexpected this was in your life and how how enriching would you describe it to be?
1: I, I am uh, you know, it's so funny. It's become such a part of my life now that I often don't think about it not being part of my life, but every once in a while, something will come up, you know, a milestone, whatever, you know, 250,000 downloads on the podcast, whatever it is, you've seen some <laughs> of that stuff as we along, or some of the stories, the messages I get on a daily basis from people that do say nice things to me. And, and every once in a while, the light bulb will go like, Oh, this, how did I get here? How did this happen? But Yes, it is absolutely an enriching experience. I mean just just doing it for the sake of doing it is well worth the time and effort.
0: And you would have gotten about here. It. You would not have gotten here had you not gone through the pain.
1: No, correct. I would not have gotten there. I mean in my fa- I have a younger sister, she's out saving the world. I love her and I'm proud of what she does. In the family, she was saving the world. I was the evil social Darwinist for many <laughs> many years. So, you know, and we would joke about that all the time. Like, I'm the capitalist nest, I'm like the capitalist pig. She's out saving the world one person at a time. Amazing. Like, how did that change?
0: (laughs) I love, I was the capitalist pig, and that's the uh, only dialogue I knew. And then, oops, accidentally, I know of a few people who um, would agree. Uh, the effort that you have put in to creating a, a good place for a dialogue around this you know, disorder—to um, yeah. say you saved someone's life is a little dramatic, but you have um sometimes the truth is dramatic and i know you are so mad at me right now but um <laughs> but i felt that way listen when i had when i had the rooms that you created to go into to be with people who truly understood what i was going through and i was able to borrow their experience and strength and hope in order to move forward even 1 inch I, was it life saving I don't know, but it, it, that, that phrase does seem a little bit applicable to me. That is how I experienced it. And for that, I thank you. But and I, well, I, I'm not-
1: Life-changing. Gonna... I'll say life-changing.
0: Life life-changing. Life-changing. And that was completely not on your agenda. And then, you know, things yeah. got incredibly hard and this is what came out of it. Um, I, I That story is phenomenal to me. And also, by the way, thank you so much for making time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. And I think I will too.
1: My pleasure. Always fun. Thank you, Drew. You're very welcome, Jane.
0: You can find more information about Drew Salata and the work he does at theanxioustruth.com. If you want to send me an email, um, I don't really care if it's nice or not. Uh, you can send me an email to howdy at grinningidiot.com. That's H-O-W-D-Y at grinningidiot.com. I really want to thank you for choosing to spend some time with us today, and we look forward to having you with us again. In the meantime, if you want to keep abreast of new podcasts coming from Grinning Idiot, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or at Stitcher or on Spotify. Until we meet again, this has been your host, Jay Floyd. And remember, we're all idiots. We might as well laugh about it. Bye, folks. Silly wave goes here.
1: Thank you, Drew. You're very welcome, Jay.